As we come now before the very word of God, please turn in your Bibles to the book of James in chapter 4. We'll be here again in James 4. And as you turn there, would you please pray with me? Lord God, you are our God. And your judgments are in all the earth. So Lord, now we ask that by your wisdom, would you be pleased to open your word to us? That by your spirit, you would guide us in the reading and the hearing of these things, that you would press them deeply upon our hearts, that we would desire what is good. Would you make us able to obey you now, that you would be honored now and over the course of our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is James in chapter 4. I want to take this morning just two verses, which I know seems small for us in comparison to where we've been before. But James chapter 4, we'll read here verses 11 and 12. James 4, beginning in verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his neighbor speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy but who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of God. Now, to help us get a little bit better grip on what's going on here, let me remind us uh, where we are in the letter of James again. At the end of chapter 1, which now was some months ago when we were there, James described at the end of that chapter a religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father. In other words, now that we as Christians are saved by the grace of Jesus, now that we are already adopted into the family of God, now that we are made citizens of his kingdom, pure religion then is part of what it looks like to live in that context. It's how we live holy lives that are united to Jesus. And in that context, James gives us three broad themes that he's going to unpack in the rest of the letter. The themes are to bridle the tongue, to care for the needy, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The verses that we're looking at today are mainly under that third theme, so it's not mainly about words or even mainly about compassion. It's about avoiding worldliness, specifically of the stain of the world, that we're not to go again and go along with the way of the world, that, that we are following a different way of Jesus. And the specific aspect now of worldliness that James is addressing here is this. He's addressing judgmentalism. That is what it's like to be judgmental. He calls us not to be judgmental. So so the question then is, well, how? What exactly does that look like? I'll attempt to give 
um, my best shot at a definition of judgmentalism in just a moment, which I hope will help us. But, but that's a tough challenge to give a nice, tidy definition because judgment, at least in the ways that we judge, not how God judges, but how, how we judge, that sort of judgment is complex in the scripture. There's, there's a wide array of expressions or uses of judgment that can be either positive or negative, can be good things or bad things. So for example, Jesus says in one of his interactions in John chapter 7, let me find it. It's at the tail end of one interaction. He says in John uh, chapter 7, verse 24, just this. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is what we're striving for. So you'll notice when Jesus says this, he does not say, never judge. He does not say all judgment is bad. He says that on one hand, we're not to judge, and on the other hand, do judge. You actually have an obligation or responsibility to judge, and the way that it's good or bad depends uh, upon the way the judgment is expressed. The, the bad judgment, at least as Jesus talks about it here, is one that's judged by appearances. The good judgment, he just says, is right judgment. But, but what is that? What is, what is right judgment? Again, the answer is not you know, simply, clearly cut and dried, but scripture affirms many ways in which our judgments may be right. Let me give just a few of the types of judgment that may be right things according to the scripture. So one is judgment of assessment. Judgment of assessment. It is impossible to live without even daily assessment. You've probably made maybe a hundred. I don't think that's lightly putting it. This morning already. You know, things like, will I have Raisin Bran or Cheerios? Maybe that's a clear assessment for you. Maybe not. Uh, but it's an assessment nonetheless. You know, if I were going to Quincy, should I take Highway 61 or should I take 172? You know, uh, if, I, if I'm looking to buy a house, is now a good time to buy a house or should we wait? You know, these are sort of regular assessments, regular judgments that we make. There are sometimes even negative assessments that we make, and they're not automatically wrong just because they're negative. So James, for example, in the text just before we read, if you remember from last week, calls people adulteresses, calls them sinners, calls them double-minded. Those are negative, but they're right assessments. Jesus also compares people sometimes to dogs and pigs and snakes. These are still right judgments, even though they're negative. And some people will tell us or tell others that it's wrong to judge anything as one over another. You know, you shouldn't judge. You shouldn't put one thing over another. And some people will say that, especially in relation to religion. You can't put one better than another. You can't say that Christianity, say, is better than Buddhism or Mormonism or atheism. But even that idea itself is a judgment. It's an assess when you if you say all religions are equal, that itself is a judgment. It's an assessment of what is better. 
It's saying all of them are the same is better to saying one is better than another. So we can't pretend that someone who just is trying to, to say they're all equal, that's some sort of higher ground, some sort of judgment-free zone. It's not. Assessments of judgment are important and even unavoidable as part of our lives. So those sorts of things may be good judgments also. Here's another example of types of judgment that may be good. Judgment of, of sin. Specifically, our judgment of one another's sin within the church. I know that's uncomfortable as a thought. I don't like people thinking about my sin or even noticing it, but Paul says this specifically to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says in verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Isn't it those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, but purge the evil person from among you. There's a fun verse, right? There's some sort of responsibility even for judgment among us. We need a measure of judgment and discipline within the church. The goal is not just to kick people out or be really nitpicky about their lives. The goal is to seek the purity of Jesus, to seek restoration that a person who's stuck in sin would find freedom. We want to deal with our sin. One level we don't, but on another level we do. We know it's poisonous, and in order to deal with it, we need some sort of judgment about it to happen. We cannot afford, then, to just ignore other sin. To just shrug and say, well, you know, everybody's a sinner, so we let it slide. You know, James says at the very end of his letter that if someone wanders off into serious sin, we're called to bring him back and so save his soul from death, he says. That requires some measure of judgment about that sin. We cannot avoid sin just so that we'll, we'll avoid seeming judgmental. We must judge, of course, with love and grace, but also with boldness and truth. So there's another third area that it might be good and is good is in the final judgment, in the last day. We know that Jesus, of course, is the Lord of all, that God is the only ultimate lawgiver and judge. Scripture tells us that, but the Scripture also tells us that we join Jesus in his final judgment. That every Christian... All the saints, that is, every person who's united to Jesus, will judge and condemn the world and even condemn angels in the final judgment. We join him in that. So when people say something like, only God can judge me, that's not true. That isn't true. There's three ways, assessment through sin, through final judgment. One of the biggest ways we see judgment as a positive thing in the scripture is the judgment of courts. This is the last one I'll talk about, but 
If you've been watching the news at all this week, I'm sure you've noticed all the buzz about the trial and the verdict of uh, uh, relation to the murder of George Floyd. I know that that's a very charged issue, a very heavy and even painful issue for a lot of people. We know that there are aspects of our court system that's clearly far from perfect. Sometimes the courts are even broken at times. We also know that the courts are not a sufficient solution to solve every problem of justice that we have. But at the same time, God affirms that it is good to have some sort of official human system that make courtroom judgments. Then in a court, there can be accusations where witnesses are examined. You know, where evidence is presented, where the charges are very seriously weighed, and then at the end, that judgment is pronounced. The goal is that in the end, there is some measure of justice done. And even though our system certainly has flaws, it is far better than the court of public opinion. You just ask everybody what they think, and, and it, where the, in the court of opinion, people usually know little but talk much. This is better than that, because in a courtroom with a jury and judges and all of these things, there's extended time examining the matter, weighing the matter, so that we hope and pray the judgment is right. I could go on in other forms, I won't. I think you get the point. There are many forms of good judgment that God affirms in the scripture, and yet, we also know that there are plenty of forms of bad judgment that God opposes. Judgment is a very serious matter, and it carries a great amount of weight, even if it's not just in a courtroom. So if we are wise, we will never lift a gavel lightly or hastily. There's a strange little a snippet in the letter from Jude that brings lots of discussion, but in that little piece, there's an, a dispute between the archangel Michael and the devil. And even though Michael is powerful, one of the most powerful created beings in the universe, Jude says he did not presume to pronounce judgment upon Satan, but instead he said, may the Lord rebuke you. Even Michael does not take judgment lightly. Perhaps even the most famous words about a judgment we hear in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, you'll recognize them as soon as I read them. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Judge not that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. These are meant to caution us. Not to say that we never judge, but that we should tread lightly when we do. 
I suppose now's a good point to, to give my best attempt at what exactly we mean by judgment. I've been talking all this time. I suppose I should define what we mean by the term judgment, at least in the context that James means it is this. If you're a note taker, here you go. My definition, based on the scripture, is this. Judgment is an imposed verdict on another based on assumption of superiority. Imposed verdict on another based on assumption of superiority. And what James gives us not as an absolute in every single case, but in general wisdom here is that we should not make this sort of judgment a pattern of our lives. That our default position should be to turn away from judgmental attitudes, not to be drawn to them. Specifically when they're against our brother or our neighbor. Now, you can see some of his reasoning for this. If we look at why he says these things, James equates judgment with a couple of things. Let's look. If I read again in verse 11, listen to what he compares judgment of brothers to. Verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Do you notice the, the equating of things here? He, he equates the judgment of brothers with speaking evil against them. Sometimes that word speaking evil is translated as slandering them. Slander is, you could say true things or false things. Either of those could be slander. It's things that tear down and do not build up. It's equated with that. And that's bad enough on its own, but he also equates the judgment of our brothers with judgment of the law. And that's curious. How exactly are we judging the law when we judge our brothers? When we judge other people, when we impose a verdict on another based on assumption of superiority, we are telling others and the law what the standard ought to be. We're opposing, imposing our standard upon them. And we assume superiority over the person then and over the law, that I am now the law of what is right. I am the standard of what is good. And that's a big problem. Let me give you an example. An example that is a little too common uh, in churches uh, like ours, but here it is. Sometimes we often see judgments about what a person ought to wear to church. Judgments about what to wear to church. So let's say that a, that a person, I guess I shouldn't pick on any of you, me, I a person, decide to wear to church a really ugly shirt. I mean, just hideous. It's got, I don't know, ducks on it, or, or, or it's mauve. I don't even know what color mauve is now that I say that. Some ugly color, okay, whatever, whatever that is, okay? 
and I'm wearing this shirt to worship, even to lead worship. It is one thing to have an opinion of my shirt, okay? Perhaps that's fine. You know, in some, in some senses, assessments are unavo- of unavoidable, preferences even are normal. But it's totally different territory if you think he shouldn't wear that. Do you hear the difference? Not just, I don't like it. It's, he shouldn't wear that. That imposes a verdict of judgment over me. You've placed a verdict of judgment over your brother and over the law. You know, scripture says very little about our clothing choices. If you comb the whole scripture, you're only going to barely see a few things. There's a little bit about modesty and a little bit about not being, you know, excessively ostentatious or costly and these sorts of things. But it, it says uh, nothing even about what we should wear to church on Sunday. But the fact the scripture says nothing about it does not stop people from forming very strong and judgmental thoughts about this. That we know exactly what is and isn't appropriate to wear on Sunday. We have formed our own law of church clothes. And that law is, well, whatever I say it should be. Who cares what the Bible says? You know, the Bible doesn't say whether I should show my toes on a Sunday morning or not. But my verdict is really the one that counts. Do you see the arrogance in that? Do you see the level of harm and divisiveness in that? Do you see the sin in that? I hope, trust now, that after the service you're not going to come up to me or maybe send me an email and, you know, or come up to me and say, Nathan, you know, I heard what you said about clothes, but, you know, wearing a t-shirt or wearing sandals, that is just out of line. That is just, that is disrespectful. Please don't do that to me. Okay? All that will tell me is that you did not hear a word of what I've said or that James the, in the word of God has said. All that really tells me is that the log in your own eye is keeping you from seeing your own judgmental attitudes. So pluck out the log first. Let me put it this way. It is not sin to wear a shirt with ducks on it to church. It's not sin. You know what is sin? To come to worship in a place where we are to set our hearts and minds on God and to sit there snuffing about somebody else's shirt with ducks on it. That is sin. Who then is more deserving of judgment. We know this can get really silly with the duck shirts, I know. But this can get really real really quickly. People have all sorts of judgments about how exactly people should raise their kids. 
when exactly everyone should get the vaccine. You know, what exactly it's okay for someone else to buy or not buy. It's all over. It's really, it's, it's so ingrained in us. It's so subtle. It's in me too. I'm not just picking on you. This is hard stuff. It's so subtle that sometimes we don't even recognize it when it's going on in our own heart, when we're actually doing it. Sin is sneaky that way. It loves to tuck itself into the, the dark corners of our hearts. So when we become judges, you need to know that, that you're assuming an authority that just doesn't belong to you. You're taking a position of superiority that doesn't belong to you. And so to help us see when that happens, I want to highlight just briefly a few characteristics that often accompany judgment so that you can recognize it when it happens. A judgmental approach is often accompanied by assuming motives. Not only do I know what you did, I know why you did it. It's often accompanied by jumping to conclusions. That is, I think that what I'm looking at is the full story. Instead of pausing to explore more of the context, to look into things that I might not know. A judgmental approach is often inconsistent in its application. That is, we focus on areas of other people's weaknesses, at least as far as we can judge, and we apply a harsh standard upon them, but we're a little more generous maybe against our own flaws or just ignore those things altogether. And judgmental approaches, lastly, expect the worst. Judgmentalism is not just isolated instances of judgment. It can be that, but not usually. Usually it becomes a pattern, a habit of judgment, that we become critics who are just looking to find something wrong. And so we find it. You know, we see what we want to see, and what happens when that anchors in our hearts is that grace and generosity begin to wither in us, and instead it becomes replaced by bitterness and mistrust. Surely you don't want to become like that. I don't. I don't want that for me or for us. We have to face what James has told us here. His reply to the one who judges is, well, rough. His reply is this. In verse 12, he says, There's only one judge and lawgiver, he who's able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you? Who do you think you are? I mean, how dare you put yourself in such a high position of authority? I mean, do you equate yourself with God, who's the judge over all the living and the dead? Do you find fault with his law, or that it's not good enough so you would replace it with a law of your own? Are you the one that tests hearts and minds? Are you the one who is able to save and to destroy? 
Who do you think you are? Oof. James bends our judgmental sights to take our eyes off of others and put it instead squarely on ourselves so that we would judge ourselves first, see ourselves first even. One last verse I'll go to and then I'll carry this uh, home. Paul says a very similar sort of thing in Romans chapter 14, asking some of the same questions. He says this in Romans 14, beginning in verse 10, he asks, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let's, let's not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Paul reminds us that we will all come before the judgment seat of an all-seeing God. And we will give an account to be judged. That's not a judgment of others, a verdict on what they did. Look at all the things that they did. Look at all the duck shirts that they wore. We will give an account of ourselves. And when we realize that we will have to receive judgment ourselves, that has two effects on us. Let me mention the two and then we'll be done. When we realize we have to be judged ourselves, the two effects are, one, it strips us of the high ground. Judgmental attitudes assume a position of superiority. I'm higher than you, but, but how am I able to hold on to my own sense of superiority and judge my brother when we are both bowed, you know, face and knee before the throne of God. In that context, I'm not above you. I'm not below you either. I'm just next to you. When we're both sinners, all of us sinners under the authority of a holy God who alone holds the gavel to save or to destroy, there's just no high ground there except at the very throne of God. And the second thing this does to us is to show us our need of Jesus. I did not realize how often I truly judge until I dove into this passage myself. Boy, it stings to see your own sin. God sees it even more than I do, but if anyone has the right to impose a verdict on another based on an assumption of superiority, it's Jesus. Jesus is superior in every way. He's the author and the, the authority over all, and, and God the Father has given all judgment to Christ the Son. Jesus will judge the sin 
of the whole world. There will be hell to pay for some. But for all who put faith in Jesus, who surrender to the power of Jesus, who receive his grace, we do not meet him ultimately as our judge. A Christian meets Jesus as our advocate, the one who stands for us. We meet Jesus as our mediator, the one who gave his own life as a ransom to save us. We meet Jesus as the one who intercedes for us, who who paid for our sin and who purchased us by his blood. So a Christian with faith in Jesus does not need to fear the judgment of God. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So take heart. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, your word exposes us in every way. That we know that these judgmental attitudes are too often true of us, that we have such pride and audacity to set ourselves over one another and even over your law. Lord, would you humble us? Cause us to be loving and generous as you have been to us. And would you cause us to cling to Jesus as our Savior and our Lord? And we give you praise for all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.